First Kings chapter 8, it's a long chapter, but we have this thing where we read what we're going to study. And so I'm going to give you, I give a little bit of setup so I don't have to read quite the whole thing. And I'll try to make it so my setup is not actually longer than what we would have read. Um, in First Kings chapter 8, what we have is Solomon, King Solomon, dedicating the temple that they have just completed um, for the use of worshiping the God of heaven. And so this is a, <clears throat> it's a really powerful passage. Uh, this, this prayer, we're going to read the whole prayer, and, uh, because this is, this is a, not really a series, but we're kind of sprinkling in, in between series as we go um, over the next year and a half or so. We're going we're gonna to kind of sprinkle in these, these one-off messages that, that are just focusing in on a prayer and what it teaches us about prayer, how we ought to pray, and, um, and things like that. And so, so anyway, as we look at that, so, so King David has died. He, towards the end of his life, had this great wish, as things kind of settled down in his life, to build a temple for the Lord. Um, at, at, up to this, up to this point, actually up to this point in First Kings chapter eight, the all of the sacrifices and the worship of the God of heaven, of Yahweh, happened in the tabernacle, the, the same tabernacle that they built back in in Moses' time. They, they continued in that fashion to, and and it was it was this purposeful thing that God. God's place here was temporary, and that even was kind of symbolic. That um, just that, that this is this is not where God is contained here, and we'll see some of that in in this prayer. But it also became kind of symbolic that uh, here now the people were established. They lived in houses. David and Solomon they lived in incredible palaces, and God's place that they had for him was a tent. And they realized the kind of inappropriateness of that. And, and so David had this great desire to build the temple of the Lord, but God said to him, you've desired a good thing. However, you got too much blood on your hands and, and you will not get to build it, but your son will. And, and Solomon Solomon got to build it. Solomon, for those, you know, if you're not super familiar with scripture, Solomon's Fame and wealth and wisdom was renowned the world over. Um, I, I mean, we, we don't have time in, in the context of this message to go through the, the chapters leading up to this, but I mean, it, it's just chapter after chapter of just the unbelievable wealth that Solomon experienced in his, in his time as king. He got to preside over the largest physical boundaries of the nation of Israel ever. Um, his, his father, King David, had, had done quite a bit of conquest in uh, driving people out of the land that God had promised the nation of Israel, and then Solomon got to be the, the kind of, for the, most, for the most part, the peacetime king over this huge area, and, and it, it encompassed just incredible natural resources. I mean, it, he had stuff, I mean, they were doing trade stuff. He had ships that would go out, and every couple of years they'd come back like loaded down with gold and things like that. I mean, it, 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 was, said, it was said that that King Solomon, like there were so many things that were gold that he made silver 
as though it were just a common stone. In fact, nothing in his palaces or in the temple was made of silver because silver was, there was just so much gold, the silver was like, that was like the cheap, that's like cubic zirconia, you know, instead of diamonds. It was like, no, 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 no. there's no place for that in the temple. That's cheap stuff. Um, we only had gold. And it's just incredible. At Solomon's temple, it was said that if you, in the ancient world, if you had not seen Solomon's temple, you had not seen a beautiful building anywhere. That that was, that, like, that encompassed, like, it was like the, the absolute apex of beautiful architecture at that time. And, and so, so as we, as, as we read through, through this prayer, but before we get to this prayer, so, so the, the, the temple was in the city of David and the, or the, 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 sorry, the tabernacle was in the city of David, and that's where, um, during David's reign and up to this point, that's where the, the Holy of Holies, the tent of meeting, the, the altar of sacrifice, the Ark of the Covenant was. And in fact, during, during David's reign, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been, you know, Jerusalem had been sacked, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen as like a, hey, this is like a relic, and apparently it has power. So the Philistines took it, and it basically ruined their lives for a few years. Um, that's some, Funny stories. Those are good. Like they'd come in every morning and their idol, like to their God, had like fallen on its face and something else broke off of it every day. And they were like, we gotta get this thing out of here. Like send it back. So eventually, um, David brings it back and he didn't, you know, read the scripture on how you're supposed to transport this thing. And because of David's poor decision on how to hurry up and get this thing back, he caused someone to lose his life. If you remember the story that the Ark of the Covenant is being transported inappropriately. The, the scripture in the Old Testament law was super clear. When you transported the, the Ark of the Covenant, priests were the only ones that could carry it, and they were to carry it by those poles. No one was to touch the Ark itself, and so David had it loaded on an ox cart and trailered it there, and it hit a bump, and it almost fell off, and a guy who seemed like he was doing... I, I used to struggle with this story until I realized it was David's fault. This guy, like, you know, reaches up to, you know, so it doesn't fall in the mud. Seems like a good thing, right? Except God was like, don't touch my ark. And he died. And that was David's fault. We're not going to read the whole thing, but Solomon, uh, it, it makes a point of saying the priests carried it by the poles from the city of David up to the temple. Now, the city of David and the Temple Mount and Jerusalem, if you go there today, which I got the opportunity to, and it's amazing, um, it seems like, wait a minute, isn't this all Jerusalem? Yes, but at, at that time, the city of David was over on this slope of this mountain, and then the, you know, Jerusalem proper is up here, and it, you know, the cities, cities were kind of like, it's now all one city. Anyway, when you had to walk everywhere, things were further apart even though they weren't that far apart. Um, so anyway, so they, they bring it up from the city of David part of Jerusalem to the Temple Mount part of modern-day Jerusalem. And anyway, and so they, they bring it in, and it, it's just incredible. And, and they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're doing sacrificing. There's all these things kind of consecrating that. It, it, it's a big deal. In fact, they, they bring the whole tent of meeting from the tabernacle into the temple itself, symbolizing the presence of God moving from the tabernacle into this, this place, the temple. And in fact, when they, when they finally brought the Ark of the Covenant in, I, I do want to go ahead and read this because it's just, it's just unreal. Uh, it's so cool though. It says, 
It says, then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. They like stuck out of the, of the tent. But they could not be seen from outside. They are there to this day. Well, the day of writing of this book anyway. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So those tablets that represented God's covenant with his people and the other stuff that used to be in the ark had been pilfered out of it um, in the meantime. And when the priests came out of the holy place, get this, this is so cool, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's beautiful. That's cool. All right, we're going to go ahead and, and start reading. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 here, and he, he's, going to, he's going to speak to the people, and then he's going to pray, and then he's going to have kind of a, a benediction to uh, the people again. 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 12, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Which, by the way, was a nice sentiment, but God never said that he would dwell in that place forever. But anyway, nice thought. Uh, Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to, my, to David, my father, saying, Since the day I, that I brought my people out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth. And with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David my father, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David my father. 
But will indeed, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. You have regard, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. We're going to pause there. There, There's there's something I don't want you to miss there. He keeps referring to it as a a dwelling place or a, a place where the name of the Lord is. A place... A place of which you have said here in, in verse 29, my name shall be there. And, and in this section, he's making clear, and he's saying this, both he's praying this to God, but in front of the people, and, there, and there's a clear message in here, God is not contained in this place. God's name is here. His glory is here. He has chosen this place to represent his presence on earth, but he is everywhere. And and so King Solomon says, listen from heaven as people pray in this place. And um, I I think that's really important for us to remember. You know, it's some people like to come to the church to pray. I don't know, we don't have a lot lot of that here, but I've, I've seen that before. Um, it, is, it is most often people with a with a maybe a Catholic background or something like that that uh, there's there's this sense that uh, that God I don't know like the transmission signal is stronger here or something like that but but th- but this right here is an important an important message that kind of speaks to that 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 God is omnipresent He's everywhere all the time and He His dwelling place is in heaven and He hears the prayers of his people, no matter where they are. He is not limited to this temple where you have to go there and pray in within earshot of him so that he can hear you. God is bigger than that. And so it, it is very clear that this is a representation of God's presence with his people. If a man, picking back up in, in verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers. Pausing there. Um, That happened later on. Solomon didn't have some crystal ball. He he, he didn't have, um, he he wasn't, I mean, in, in a way he's kind of, unintentionally prophesying here because this is something that ends up happening, although he he didn't know it. But Solomon was extremely wise. He had been given wisdom by God, and he knew something. That man 
is inclined always to sin. He knew that, that we are always inclined to fall away from God, particularly when things are good, because we don't feel that desperate need. And so here he says something that is exactly what happens, that, they, that they, um, they're defeated because they've sinned against you and, and that they're, they're carted away. Um, there's an acknowledgement in there. There's kind of a challenge even to the people around him. Don't fall away from God. Don't forget this moment here when you're, when you're looking at this marvelous temple with the presence of God descending down on it with this cloud that's so thick the priests can't even see what they're doing to, to, uh, to do the, the worship stuff. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. We'll just keep going. <laughs> Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a, a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people, Israel that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive in the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I built for your name, and here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. 
for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. There is so much in this prayer that we could probably do a whole series on it. Um, and so I, I want to I hit some, <clears throat> some really key points. First of all, this prayer doesn't sound like anything we usually pray, does it? I mean, maybe I'd just speak for myself, but, but I think most of us, when we pray... Well, most commonly, we, we, we pull out our list. Dear God, please, here's all the things I want. Oh, who am I kidding? You can read it. You know, like, <clears throat> we, we tend to, well, first of all, we, we tend to pray uh, most often only when we need something, when we feel the need for something, and least often when, we, when life is good. When we get the thing that we've been praying for, we tend to stop praying. Um, So much of what he is praying here speaks to God's character. He is thanking God and also both thanking God for fulfilling up to this point his promises and asking God though, of course, it's consistent with his character, and he will, but, but asking God to continue to be faithful to his promises, which is, it seems weird, I guess, to, to ask God to do something which you know he has already said he's going to do. I mean, doesn't that seem weird? Oh, God, please don't forsake me. But scripture says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but, but it's, not in a, it's not an inappropriate prayer. There's something about praying... It's not magic words. It's not like, oh, the, the, the spell was here. I mean, that's, how, that's how some people treat Scripture, that like, you know, I'm claiming this promise. And the way I claim it is I say it out loud, and that gives it power because I said it. Well, God's promises are true whether you even know about them or not. God's, God's, uh, the, the fulfillment of God's promises is not dependent on our declaring them or asking that for them or anything like that, but it does something for our own hearts when we... I don't know, think, think of the, the prayer to please uh, don't forsake me. Think, think about praying that prayer. First of all, it's, it's important for us to acknowledge our fear of that. It's important for us to acknowledge how deeply that would affect us negatively if God were to forsake us. It affects us to, in that prayer, recognize, I have this great need for your presence, and you have promised not to take it away from me. You see, praying and asking God to remember his promises. Of course he's going to remember his promises, whether we remind him. It's not like we need to remind him of his promises. 
we need to be reminded of his promises. We need to be reminded not only that God said he would do something, but that, in fact, that would be good for us. That, in fact, there's a reason why he promised that, and because that is something that we need. And so, anyway, I've gotten really focused on one specific thing, and I don't want to make it all about that. He he makes a, a, a big deal about God fulfilling his promise to Solomon's father, David, that he had promised him. And, and there, is, there, are, there are several things that where other covenants from the Bible show up here in this, in this prayer. The, the, the Mosaic covenant, which is symbolized by the two tablets of stone that are in the Ark of the Covenant. The Mosaic covenant, which is, which is like the law portion of Scripture. And in that covenant was a covenant that God made with his people Israel that you will be my people. And, and here is, here is what I expect of you and here is how you ought to worship me. But, but you are, I have chosen you, my people Israel, as my inheritance, as it were, from all the peoples of the earth. And, and, and the point of that was that they would represent God, that they would show the rest of the world, this is what it should look like to serve God. Look look at us and look at how God has, not like, oh, look at us, we're so great, but look at how God has provided for us, cared for us, preserved us, kept his promises to us, dwelt with us, and see that the Lord is good. See that you ought to know him as well. I, I love, this is one of the only places in the Old Testament where you see, I mean, but until you get to I don't know, maybe a couple of the prophets, but really like the New Testament where the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. This is one of the only places in the Old Testament where you see someone in any position of authority in Israel really praying for foreigners to know God, to see his mighty works and come to know him. That's beautiful because that's you and me. I don't know. I mean, how many many people are Jewish in this room? It's okay, you can raise your hand. We're, 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 we're pro-Israel here. <laughs> okay, so like all of us, Solomon is praying for the spread of the knowledge of God. Praise the Lord for people who got it. They were few and far between. The nation of Israel was supposed to be this, a, a nation of priests. The idea that, that God is going to reveal himself to man we, we serve a God that can be known, that wants to be known, that has revealed himself in a way that he can be known and understood what is expected um, of what God expects of people and how we can be right with him. God has revealed all of that. And he chose through most of the timeline of, of biblical history to reveal himself to man through the nation of Israel. That we could not only have his word through the law, but we could also see his actions to his people, and so other, I mean, good grief, if you want evidence for the existence of God, and particularly the love of God, I can, I can probably give you no better evidence than the, the nation of Israel. The fact that they, that they still exist as a nation. How many times? <laughs> They've basically lived their entire existence under the shadow of enemies whose entire goal was to snuff them out off the face of the earth, and yet, here they are. God's chosen people. I mean, this. I went there 
And one of the things that blew my mind the most was that you can, you can really see the whole thing. Most of the lands where all of this stuff happens, you can literally see it in a week. It's like the nation of Israel fits inside New Jersey. It's not, it's not that, it's like how, how is that a major player on the world scene? How, like you look at the size of some of their enemies. I mean, Iran, good grief. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, a rocket's throw away from Israel. How on earth, if they want to snuff Israel out, how have they not just done it? They're right next door. And yet, they're here. God's chosen people. We can, we can look at so much of this was written to Israel. I was just talking before the service. Remember, when you're, when you're reading Scripture, so much of Scripture is written. All of Scripture is written for you. Um, most of it was not written to you. And so when you, when you read Scripture, remember you're reading someone else's mail. And so that lens that helps us understand God, we're not looking for how we can shoehorn ourselves into this passage, but we're looking for, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about how I ought to pray and how I ought to relate to his word? So we get God's word, we get God's actions as we observe his people. And I I just, I don't know, I just can't emphasize this enough, how beautiful this is that Solomon is praying for people like you and me, who at that time had no knowledge of God, but that they would, but that this this temple, this beautiful building, would not attract eyeballs that you know would add to Solomon's fame and how great I am and how cool I am. Hey, you know, wouldn't that be great if the whole world came and saw how cool we are? No, that this this would draw eyeballs to God. That people would look here and realize that there is something real here. It's beautiful. But something that we see throughout from basically from basically verse 31 on, which is almost, I mean, almost the whole prayer, is almost a prayer of confession. It, it's like um, confession before it's happened or something. It, and he's, he's not asking God to, for, to um, forgive ahead of time and, hey, listen, uh, people are going to mess up, so if we could just get that dealt with now. But, but he's, he's acknowledging God's character and this, this really, really, really key thing in God's character, his willingness to forgive. And, you know, if you go back to, if you were to go back, and we don't have time, you know, to Exodus, Exodus chapter, uh, I think it's 30, uh, where God re- reveals himself to Moses, and he, um, he kind of like covers Moses with his hand, and he passes by, and he allows Moses to see where he had just been, and then Moses glowed in the dark for about a month, and freaked people out, so he had to like wear a veil. I mean, like, like he, like, he, God allowed Moses to see like the swoosh of where he had been. He didn't even look upon God because you can't. And as he passes over Moses, he, he declares something about himself. The, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the 
third and fourth generation. That is what God said about himself. I have that marked in my Bible because, like, to me, when God speaks about his own character, I mean, this is all God's word. And when other people are speaking about God's character, like, it, it's true, except for Job's friends. We'll get to that in another series. Um, <clears throat> but those are the words God chose to speak about his own character. And here, Solomon is acknowledging we are sinful. There is, I love what he says here. It's the first, it's the first, this is Romans 3.23 in the Old Testament. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here it is in the Old Testament. Solomon says, for there is none, there is no one who is without sin. Verse 46, there is no one who does not sin. Solomon acknowledging we have sin to confess and, um, Tomorrow we're going to have new sin to confess, and next year we're going to have a bunch more new sin to confess, and, and a generation from now, I don't even know if people are still going to be following you. There's going to be sin to confess. God, we know that you have declared about yourself that you are a God who is willing to forgive people when they repent. His father David wrote in a psalm that, a, a, a broken and contrite spirit, O oh Lord, you will not despise. I, I love that. He's talking about, you know, the acceptable sacrifice is not, is not you know, sheep and goats and the fat of rams or, or, or whatever. It is, it is a broken and contrite spirit. It is a repentant heart that says, God, at the end of the day, I can't kill enough animals to make up for what I've done wrong. It doesn't work like that anyway. I, at the end of the day, must throw myself on your mercy. And so throughout this prayer, all of these examples, whether it's individuals between one another or the nation between them and God that have, that have, that have done wrong, God's willingness to forgive, this ought to teach us something about confession and the importance of it. If they say we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart, then hear in heaven. I'm reminded, so many of those, those sections where he's talking about, I'm reminded of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. How many of you know 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, has, God had prescribed to the nation of Israel all this whole sacrificial system in which, you know, if you do this, you, know, you got you to gotta offer this sacrifice. If you do this wrong, you got to offer this sacrifice. And if you do this, and, uh, um, and, and, and if you... And I'm not even going to go into any detail, but then there's like this whole list of uh, things that make you ceremonially unclean that are, let's just say, going to happen to you in the course of your life. Uh, now, now, now you got to offer these sacrifices. The, the, the whole point of that was not, here's the animals you got to kill to be right with God. No, the, the whole point of it was, you cannot be right with God in and of yourself. There's always going to be, you, you come and offer sacrifices and worship God in the temple today, and you come back tomorrow, there's going to be something else that you will have to offer some kind of sacrifice for because 
you and me in and of ourselves cannot be worthy. We cannot be right. We cannot be clean or pure enough to approach the throne of God. And yet he's called us to. How can we do that? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice once for all that covers all sin. The the one who is righteousness and who has, as we say theologically, imputed righteousness. That is, that is given his righteousness to those who have put their faith and trust in him. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of this prayer, and, but, but I, need to, I need to bring this to a close. And so I just wanna, I want to challenge us, maybe spend some time this week in this passage, or if you want a different one, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 5, it's the same thing. Um, <clears throat> spend some time praying to God and resolve that you're not going to really ask for anything. I'm not saying don't ask. I mean, God tells us to bring our requests to him. But set aside some time to just pray God's character. And and this passage helps us do that. One of the things that I love, there is a spirit of humility. We see this in in um, in the next chapter, God appears to Solomon. And in... um, in the Second Chronicles um, account, chapter 7, verse 14, God says, says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I feel like I can't read that without clarifying That is not talking about Americans. Israel is the nation which is called by God's name. And Christian are a people who are called by Christ's name who are, by the grace of God, grafted in. No, we are not Israel, and yet we are God's inheritance, God's family, God's children. And so I I just want to be, like, really clear. We ought to always seek the welfare of the city that we are in. God told the the nation that when they were, like Solomon had prayed for, carted off by enemies because they'd done wrong into other nations. And they... they, (laughs) I guess Jeremiah, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and says, just so you know, um, you could be here a long time. So get comfortable, take wives, raise a family, plant a garden. Uh, you'll be around to harvest it several times, quite a few, several, lots of times. And so will your kids. Um, 
get comfortable, not too comfortable, but seek the welfare of the city. The fact that you, my people, are here should, should be good for them. They should learn about me because you're here, and you ought to seek the welfare of the city. So we ought to do that. But let's, let's, not, let's not think about America like it's the new Israel and, and we are God's, you know, America's God's people. Um, we're we're not, not doing a bunch of flag worshiping here. And yet, we pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. And we pray for the nation of Israel. We pray for the family of Christians around the world that we would constantly confess, that we would constantly be a testimony to those around us that God is great. God keeps his promises to his people. And when we turn to him, he listens. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can study passages like this and we can continue to study passages like this and, and every day until we draw our last breath and then step into your presence, God, we can learn new things about you and about how our, um, how our lives need correction, course correction, to come into better alignment with your word. God, thank you so much for the wisdom that you gave Solomon to, to con contain in this prayer so much truth about you keeping your covenants and your promises, about your, your omnipresence to hear our prayers no matter where we are, no matter what country we're in, no matter what people we come from, you hear our prayers because you are everywhere. Thank you so much for these reminders that we will constantly find ourselves in need of forgiveness, that we ought to always confess our sin and repent and turn from those ways. God, thank you so much that through Jesus Christ, though we ought to confess, we ought to seek your forgiveness, we don't stand condemned because through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven. Thank you so much for that above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.